That's all you're seeing. Uh, isn't that a drag? You'll still like, oh, dude, let's watch the rest of the movie. <clears throat> We're right now in a, in a study in the book of Acts called The Church on Fire. Um, a study of the book of Acts, and we have been looking at the first two chapters so far. And right now we're in the heart of chapter two, uh, and we've just seen some amazing things happen. Uh, this spirit that was promised that would come in power, it had come before, but it had never come like this before, uh, came upon the apostles while they were in this room, and uh, amazing things. They, they, they describe it as a rushing wind and a roar, and these tongues of fire come, and they land on them. They all start speaking other languages, languages that people who have come to hear you know, they, they hear this, this ruckus and they say, what's going on? And they come to, uh, to these disciples, these 12 followers of Christ, and they're speaking other languages. There might have even been up to 120 other people if you follow what happened previously. So it could be a whole bunch of people are speaking other languages in the native tongue, in the native language of these people who had come to take a look at what was happening. And so then in that context, Peter stands up and gives a sermon, the first ever Christian sermon. And it's a good one. And those of you who, uh, if you've opened your Bible to this passage in Acts chapter 2, he, he lists this sermon, and at the very end it says, a phrase that says, and with many other words he persuaded them, which was the indication that pastors are supposed to preach long sermons. So I can't help it, it's just in the Bible. I just do what I'm told. <laughs> anyway. Um, and these people who 53 days previous were yelling crucify him, crucify him to the Christ, Peter preaches a message and there, it's the text says in chapter 2 of Acts that they were cut to the heart and they decide that they too want to be followers of Christ. 3,000 people, roughly 10 times the number of people in this room right now who were antagonistic towards Jesus now become followers of Christ. Now I want to take a minute because when I was a freshman at the University of Minnesota, um, I heard a simple explanation of how you can make that change from being maybe not antagonistic, but from being someone who wouldn't call themselves a follower of Jesus to someone who was a follower of Christ. And so, uh, if you'll just bear with me here a little bit, I even put together a little PowerPoint deal that uh, <clears throat> I have way too much time on my hands. But I uh, put together a little thing here that would describe it. And if you want a copy of this, just email me and I'll, and I'll send you a copy of this little thing. What I want to tell you is the simple message of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. How do you start that relationship? How do you start it? And it is very simple. I think we make it complicated. It's very, very simple. And for me, when I was engaged for the first time in my life with a simple message of what it means to be a follower of Christ, how you start that relationship, I couldn't believe it. It was like, that's it? That's how you can know you're going to heaven when you die? That's how you can know you're having a relationship with God? You don't have to wonder? So let me, uh, let me just show you this little deal here. In the beginning, if you're, I'm going to give you a Bible overview here, but in the beginning... When God created Adam and Eve, there was a perfect relationship. It'd be kind of like a straight line between God and us, and there wasn't any problems. And then all of a sudden, if you're familiar with Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve decide to turn their back on God. 
And Isaiah 59.2 is a passage that really makes this clear. Isaiah 59.2. These are in your insert. Uh, I couldn't fit them into my fancy little PowerPoint deal here. But um, but it says, but your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. So it's like this sin came in and there's this broken relationship now between you and God. Now if you take this idea and you separate those two apart, you get this. You get... Go to the next one there, Ben. You get two cliffs. And you get us on one side and God on the other side. And in between, it is our sin. Now, sin is an old-fashioned word, right? Sin is nothing more than not allowing God to be your God. That's the simplest definition I can give you of what sin is. You think, oh, it's breaking commandment and all those things. Sure it is. But ultimately what it is is saying, God, I see you. I'm going my own way, thank you. I'm going to eat this apple or what, whatever fruit it was. <coughs> Excuse me. Or I'm going to do whatever. Or I'm going to do what I want to do, not what you want me to do. Sure, that's what it is. But ultimately what it is is it's creating an idol in your own life where you decide to follow your own ways instead of God's or follow, let him be the one who satisfies you. That's what sin is. Now, it's a big deal. It's a huge deal. If I were to call up Rob, say, and, and, and give him a crank phone call and say, uh, just in joking, I'm, if I were to say, oh, you big jerk, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> Which does happen in our conversations quite frequently, actually. <laughs> that wouldn't be a big deal. If I were talking to my friend, President Bush, <laughs> and I were to say, oh, you big jerk, I'm going to kill you, there would be Secret Service all over me. In a matter of minutes, some FBI agents from Minneapolis would be at my door hunting me down and I would have a one-way ticket to a padded cell. Okay, why? I said the same thing, but it's who I said it against. Now, every time you, you, you sin against, you're slapping a holy God in the face. That's way bigger than, than threatening President Bush's life. By the way, don't ever replay just that message, that part of this tape. Get me in all kinds of trouble. Uh, <clears throat> It's a huge, it's, I couldn't fit it on the screen, but it's a big distance between the two. What, how, what would characterize our side of the, of the, uh, of the cliff there? Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and this way death came to all men because all sinned. By choice and by nature, we have chosen to sin. We have chosen to do it. And that leads to death. Death, in its simplest definition, is separation, right? You're separated from your body, and you're dead. You ever been to a funeral, you look at that body, you go, dude, they're not there. It's really weird. They're just not there, and they're not. But that's not the death they're talking about. They're talking about separation from God. And if you die in that state, you'll be separated from God eternally. That is bad news. That is bad news. Good news over here. John 3, 16, what characterizes God For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. What characterizes God? God, I don't get it, but God is a God of love to the very people who are slapping him in the face. God loves you, and that leads to life. But you're over here. That's you. Right right there. Isn't that you? Yeah, there you are. (laughs) I have way too much time on my hands. Yeah, that... Uh, that's you, and you're sitting there going, well, I see this over here. Man, this, this stinks on this side. And I see this over on this side. This is great, but how do I, how do, this is a big leap there. 
a big jump. How do I get across this chasm? How do we fix this problem we have? And that's a Romans 5.8. Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is money. If you don't, if you, if you don't memorize any other verse in the Bible, memorize Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, while we were still slapping God in the face, he sent Christ to die for you, to take your sin and to pay your crime. God is completely just. Somebody has to pay for the crimes that were committed against him, and that's what Christ did on the cross. Fancy word for it is substitutionary atonement. In other words, somebody else pays for your crime, and Christ did it. You can pay for them, or you can let Jesus pay for them. Well, this guy says, dude, I want to let Jesus pay for them. I don't want to pay for them. But this isn't like a physical bridge. How do I get from one side to the other side? That's where John 5, 24 comes in. He says, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He's crossed over from death, oops, death to life. What are the two conditions to cross over? The two things, really quite simple. Here, to hear means not just to, you know, be in the same room where you're hearing something. My wife can tell me something. In fact, she did yesterday. She said, I want you to pick up milk. And, and then she said something. And she said, she said, did you hear me? And I said, yes, I did. <clears throat> <laughs> then she said, like, the wise woman that she is, what did I tell you? <laughs> and I said, well, you know. <laughs> I'm supposed to go get milk. And, and I said, and? There was an and, wasn't there? <laughs> I wasn't hearing. I wasn't listening. I wasn't giving my full attention. And when she said, you're not listening, I stopped what I was doing because I was multitasking. By the way, guys, you can't multitask. <laughs> we do well to unitask, okay? Um, I wasn't hearing. I didn't, I didn't, at that moment, I wasn't putting her and, and the milk and the orange juice. I did, I did remember it. I got it. One point for me. <clears throat> But it was erased because I forgot what she was saying. But I wasn't hearing. Do you hear? Do you have a heart that hears? And secondly, believe. What does it mean to believe? Not only an intellectual assent. Believe has an element of commitment. Believe has it. If you believe that a bus is going to hit you, you will move. So that's when the Bible talks about believing. That's what it means. It means a level of belief. It means saying, Jesus, I hear you. And I believe you. I take you at your word. I use the letters A, B, C backwards. To confess that you are a sinner. B, to believe that Christ died for you. That he was God. That he, fully God, fully man. That he paid your penalty for you. And the A is to ask him in. Or to accept him. As your savior and your Lord. And your guide for living. And for me, when I first heard this message. The C and the B were no problem. The C and the B were no problem. Confess the sinner. Man, I knew I was a sinner. I'm an Iron Ranger. 
To be, to believe, intellectually to believe, when I, when I, I wouldn't have any problem with any of the tenets of Christianity, but the A part, to make a commitment and say, Jesus Christ, I'm laying down my life. I want, it, I want you to come in. I was stuck there for about 14 hours. And in the shower, in glorious Frontier Hall, House 10, I sat there and I went back and forth. Should I do this, shouldn't I? Should I do this, shouldn't I? And I had the same feeling uh, that, that you have when you're, you're kind of sick, you ate something bad, and you think, if I just, it's not close to lunch, if I just upchuck this, I will feel better. And I had the same thing, if I do this, I'll feel better, but it's going to hurt. And I said, I only said four words. I said, take me, Lord, I'm yours. That's five. Take me, Lord, I'm yours. <clears throat> take me, I'm yours, is what I said. I didn't say it. And I laid down my life. And that, that moment, at that moment, uh, Something happened to me. Uh, I'm not saying life was simple, rosy, and wonderful after that. But at that moment, this was true. And I went from, I had an idea. I said, I don't want to be here. I want to go over there. Now watch this. Yeah. <laughs> now, when it, when it comes to uh, pastoral salary time, I don't want you all saying, well, he doesn't have so much time. Look at, he makes this animation thing that, yeah. Anyway, that's the story. That's simple. It's simple. You can know whether or not you're going to heaven when you die. It's simple. Peter says that in Acts 2. He didn't have the fancy PowerPoint, but then again, I have the fancy PowerPoint. I've never seen 3,000 people come to Christ, but... 3,000 people decided to say, I got an idea. I don't want to be on this side. I'm going over here. And they did that. You could do that this morning. If you are at a point in your life where you have not made a commitment to Christ, now listen, we want to value wherever you're at in your spiritual journey. Some of you are here this morning and you're, you're just wrestling with, is there a God? Why is the Bible reliable? We want to be sensitive to that. You know, we want, but I love you too much to leave you there. I accept where you're at, but I love you too much to leave you there. I want to see you go further. And so maybe you just take a step this morning or whatever it is. But some of you might be at a point where you're saying, you know what, this morning, even while I'm speaking, you could have a conversation with God and seal the deal. I want to be a follower of you right now. 3,000 people made that choice, made that decision to follow Christ. Now, that's Acts 2 through verse 41. Acts chapter 2, verses starting 42, is what happens after that. What happens to this instant church just add one sermon deal? 3,000, mega church to boot. Big church. What do they do? Some of you uh, may know that I, I uh, studied uh, at Bethel Seminary and, and I did some work with the original languages. And so I've taken, um, I'm a little rusty, but I, what I want to do is just kind of get into the, the flavor of this passage, and so I translate it in my own, uh, you know, looking at the original language and translate. So if you just follow along and uh, don't, don't look it up in your Bible um, right just yet. <clears throat> Acts 2, verses 42 to 47, this is uh, my personal translation. Starting in uh, number 42, it says, And then all of them in one loud voice proclaimed, Gosh, Peter, thanks for the great entertaining sermon. You really do know how to preach, and that was really something. Then one of them, a brother by the name of Harvey, it's a little hard to know in the original language what that, I think it's Harvey, <laughs> stood up and approached Peter. He declared unto him, Peter, may I call you Pete? 
We sure appreciated the message this morning and the whole tongue of fires, uh, tongues of fire thing was something that I personally won't ever forget. But we've been talking and we don't like the fact that you're calling us to a radical life change. We're kind of like the way we are. And although the message was enlightening and very entertaining, we don't want to follow God on an everyday basis. We'll be back for Christmas and Easter. But, but not, not every week and, and, and not, certainly not every day. I mean, what's in it for us if we do? Then each one left and went back to their own home. Even though their lives did not change one bit, the message of Peter was in fact entertaining and enlightening. By the way, uh, I hope you figured out by now, that is not what Acts 2.42 says. If that was, it would be the end of the book of Acts. It would be the end of the church. We're starting today a five-week mini-series within our major series called The Transformed Life. We're going to look at Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. And there was a transformation that happened, not only because they signed a deal with God and they got their fire insurance from hell. There's something fundamentally that happened to them that changed their life. They were different. Let me read the real Acts chapter 42 and... Chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. This is what happened. This is what really happened to the 3,000 people. They de- this is real now, so I, just so you're not deceived. This is the real deal. Okay. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now, honest, that's the real deal. That's really what happened. That is radical. These are people 50 days ago, 53 days ago, who were yelling, crucify him, crucify him. And now they're hanging out in the temple courts a day and chowing in each other's homes at night, talking theology, praying Seeking each other's favor, learning things from the apostles. If, if you needed something, I got an air compressor. Take my air compressor. I don't know if they had air compressors, but I got one. If you need one, you can use it. Uh, but you know, whatever. This was radical. There was some transformation that happened here. In the white space between verse 41 and 42, that if we don't really sit and think about this, we're going to miss it. We're going to miss what the book of Acts is trying to tell you. The Holy Spirit, when it comes, comes in power, and it changes you. And it's a lifetime of change. It's not insto change It's a lifetime of change, and we're going to look at that in the next five weeks. The question we're going to ask this week is, kind of in the white space between verses 41 and 42, after after all these people respond to that message, then why did they do this? In fact... If, if you're saved from, from an eternity apart from God, we call hell, if you're saved from being separated from God by faith in Christ alone, then why do anything? Why do anything? I want to take you to a passage in, in Ezekiel. We looked at this passage when we talked about the coming of the Holy Spirit. It's in chapter 36. You can follow along on your insert. You can look on the screen if you want, or uh, you can use your Bible, whichever it is. Chapter 36, verses 22 
through 27. I actually want to look at the end of it first. And the end of this is a passage we looked at before. It says, I will sprinkle you with clean water. Uh, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I'll cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I'll remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. That's what's promised in Ezekiel to a rebellious nation. They were very rebellious at the writing of Ezekiel. It's what's promised and it was fulfilled at Pentecost. So they got this spirit in them. It changed them from the inside out. It made them different kinds of people and God did it. And God delights in doing good thing. God delights in doing good things. Remember, he spoke this to a very rebellious people. People of Israel were very rebellious at this time when, he was, when this was uh, uh, written by Ezekiel. And God spoke to Ezekiel to say it. Now, why does God do it? Have you ever stopped and wondered about that? Why does God do good things to us? There's that book put up by Rabbi Kushner. Why, what is it? Why, when bad things happen to good people. Okay, that's not the big problem. The big problem is why does do good things happen to bad people? Because all of us are sinners in, you know, I, I, sounds terrible, but it's true. We're all sinners. We all have sinned against God. Why would God, why would God do anything good towards us? I want you to look at the first part of this passage with me. Starting in verse 22. It says, Therefore say to the house of Israel, this is what the sovereign Lord says, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone, I will show the holiness of my great name, which you have profaned among the nations. He said it twice or so. It must be important. The name you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, when I show myself holy through you before their eyes. For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all your countries and bring you back into your own Land. Now, why does God do that? Why does God then do the next part? Sprinkle clean water on you, make you clean, cleanse you from all your idols, put a new spirit in you, take out that old one, take out the heart of stone, put in a heart of flesh. Why does he do that? He says he's not doing it because of you. Don't get me wrong, God loves you. John 3, 16, God loves you deeply, but he's ultimately doing it for himself. He's ultimately doing it for his name, his reputation. God is most interested in what's called his glory. In other words, that his reputation would run around the world. He's most interested in that. You've heard the Westminster Confession. It says uh, the chief end of man is to, is to uh, uh, thank you, glorify God and enjoy him forever. The chief end of God is to glorify God <laughs> and to enjoy himself forever. That's God's chief end. He's about glorifying himself. In fact, that was the thing that C.S. Lewis, the famous British uh, uh, philosopher, struggled with. He came to faith late in life. And if you can pick up any of his books, it's in money because he talks as someone who really wrestled with the Christian faith. Mere Christianity is an excellent book. Pick up a copy of that if you're wrestling with is God really there? Who is Christ? Great book. And he wrestled with this. And he so struggled with it. A stumbling point for him was the book of Psalms. Because as he'd look at the book of Psalms, he'd read about this God who commands you to worship him. And he says that that sounds like for him, and I want to quote him, 
It sounds like someone who craves for worship like a vain woman who wants compliments. They said, what is up with that? What kind of a God is that? Aren't we taught to, you know, be other-centered? Your God is, hey, it's all about me. What's that about? Now, we'll come back to that. We'll come back to C.S. Lewis and how he, how he worked this through in just a minute. First question we had to answer in this whole thing is what's, what's, uh, what motivates God? The second one is what's our real need? What's our really need? What do you really want this morning? I said it, I gave the answer one in the beginning. You really, you're really thirsty. You are thirsty this morning and you want to be satisfied. Paul says that in Colossians 3, chapters 1 to 3 says, Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. It says you've died and, and your life is hidden with Christ. What you want more than anything else is life. You were designed to live by God. That's why when people die, you feel funny. You should feel funny. I was not created to die, and neither were you. It's not a right thing. So when people die... You bum out. I know, even people who are were Christians, they love the Lord, and you know they're in heaven, but there's something, they're just not supposed to be dead. You're right. They're not supposed to be dead. You were created for that. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What you want more than anything else is life. Life. What exactly do I mean by that? Look, Declaration of Independence, Thomas Jefferson. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is really tied together. Life, liberty to be free, and the pursuit of happiness. What a weird thing to put into a legal document. Happy? Yeah. What you want to be more than anything else is happy. That's a great phrase. Pascal in, in his uh, pen, uh, Pensies, how do you say it, Andy? Pensies, yeah. Um, he says this, he says, all men seek happiness. This is Blaise Pascal, a uh, uh, very famous theologian and philosopher and um, uh, physicist and all kinds of different things. All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive for every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. Pascal says, you do this because you think you'll be happier. Now, here's the, here's the Buck 298 question. Is God's passion to be glorified and to be his reputation to run and my desire, more than anything else, to feel alive, to feel happy, to feel satisfied, I have that deep within my soul. If you don't believe it this morning, you're denying it. Are those two in conflict with one another? Let's get back to C.S. Lewis. I got this here on the screen. I, I just love this. C.S. Lewis says, But the mo most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or the giving of honor. 
I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise unless, sometimes even is, if, shyness or the fear of boring others is deliberately brought in to check it. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite players praising their favorite game, praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personage, personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians or scholars. I had not noticed how the humblest and at the same time most balanced and capricious minds praised most, while the cranks, misfits, and malcontents, isn't that a great word, malcontent? Got to use that in a sentence this week. Uh, while the cranks, misfits, and malcontents praised least. I had noticed earlier that just as men spontaneously praise what they value, so they spontaneously urge us in, to join in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Do you, don't you think that magnificent? The psalmist, in telling everyone to praise God, are doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about. My whole, more, genuinely, uh, more general difficulty about the praise of God depended on my absurdly denying it to us. As regards the supremely valuable, what we delight to do, what indeed we can't help doing about everything else we value. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is, a, it is its appointed consummation. It is not our, uh, out, I should say, out, out of compliment that lovers keep telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. Now that works for the women in the room. Let me go to the guys. We're down by six. Three minutes, three seconds left of the game. Moscow's deep. Hail Mary, fingertip catch, drags both feet in, touchdown, and we beat the Packers. <laughs> I don't care if we have a 1 in 15 season, we beat the Packers. <laughs> when that moment happens, if, and if you're sitting at my house with my boys who are sitting right up there, What happens? Ah! We go nuts. Why? Because it completes it. It would be wrong to sit there and go, hmm. <laughs> now, women, you can stay on the other one. That's, that's fine. That works too. But, but this one works for me. And well, you, what you praise, you complete. You were designed of God. Now get this. You were designed of God to run on Him. So when you delight in Him, when you praise Him, when you worship Him with all of your life, and sometimes that means gritting your teeth and just being obedient to what He says to do. When you do that, you delight in Him like that. He gets the glory, and from your toes you get satisfied. If you don't have that mentality, Acts 2, verses 42 to 47 make no sense. Why live like that then? The most selfish thing you can do is be a hardcore follower of Jesus Christ. It will satisfy your soul in ways that 
sex and drugs and money and careers and anything else you try to fill yourself with are, are monopoly money compared to this. This is the real deal here. This is selfish city. Follow Christ. Lay it all down. You'll be satisfied. I showed you that rookie clip. You're probably wondering, what the heck does that have to do with anything? <clears throat> it's all because of that one line. He's thinking, about, he's thinking about quitting a game that he loves. And if you've seen the movie The Rookie, I'm a sappy guy. I cry. There's eight points in that movie where I cry. One of them is, is at this one. But um, there, uh, there's the scene where he calls his wife. He says, I I'm quitting. And she says, you get hurt? And he says, no, I'm just done. And she asks him, do you still love it? You think about that. He still loved it. He was designed, if you watch the movie, definitely, he's designed to play baseball. And he comes back after a night of pondering it and sitting there looking at that kid playing um, baseball. Comes back and he pats his teammate on the shoulder and he says, get, well, guess what we get to do today, Brooks? We get to play baseball. He was designed to play baseball and that's what he did. Christian, you were designed to follow God. You were designed to follow God. Guess what we get to do today? We get to go to church. You know, never once in the history of Hope Community Church if people have walked in the door here and at the other building and they feel bad because they haven't come to church in a while. They say, oh, I haven't come to church in a while. And I've never said, oh, you ought to. <laughs> you should be here. You really should. Dude, that is so stupid. It's like saying when we go out to eat and, you know, I order a hot dog and the guy brings me a sirloin steak and I say, oh, no, no, I, I, I'm sorry. No, I, I can't have this. I don't have to motivate. I don't know if you like steak. Maybe it doesn't work. I've got a bunch of vegans here. The, uh, I don't know. Ice cream sundae. I don't have to shame you into you really should eat more ice cream sundaes. Would you please put it on your list and, and doggone it, be disciplined. Would you just, every day this week, what's wrong with you? In your heart, you were designed to eat ice cream sundaes. In your heart, you were designed to follow God. You were designed that way. You will only be satisfied when you live that way. That's, this is all a big introduction to our next four weeks about this. Let me give you a last closing analogy and see how this lands with you. Carol and I have been married for 15 glorious years, I might add. <laughs> You can ask her about that. Uh, she's, the, she's the delight of my eyes. There's no doubt about it. And, uh, but let's just say it's our anniversary. It would be our 16th now. And, and I come to the, I come to the uh, door and I have 16 roses. I remember not only that she likes roses, but that it's our 16th anniversary and I, I got them. I also have a gallon of orange juice too. Uh, <laughs> And I, <laughs> I bring these 16 roses to her, and she looks at them, and she says, oh, for me? And I say, well, it is our 16th anniversary. It's my duty to give you something, and so here's the roses. <laughs> huh? <laughs> now, that's stupid, right? If you're, if you're married, you know how stupid that would be to say. 
The other stupid one, this is a side point. On Mother's Day, men, when you have children, uh, don't say to her, well, you're not my mother. That, <laughs> passing these on is uh, things that I have learned. <laughs> if I say that, she doesn't get honor and I don't get satisfied. If I want to honor her, I say, honey, man, I'm the luckiest guy on the face of the earth. You would 16 years ago marry me. And I am just honored to have you as my wife for that period of time. And tonight, girlfriend, we're going to get our dancing shoes on and we're going dancing to celebrate our love. <laughs> now, who gets honored in that? She gets honored. Who gets satisfied? Oh, gosh, tickles me. Tickles me just to, just to say that. You can check to see what I do for our 16th anniversary if I really do that. It gives me honor. Or it gives her honor and it gives me joy. That's what God wants. He wants you to honor him and he wants to fill you with joy. Let me ask you a question. I'm, we're starting a series here, a little mini one inside this bigger series of Church on Fire. Will you live the transformed life? Will you live that life? Because what we're going to talk about is some pretty heavy stuff. But what it means to live that kind of life. Are you willing to say, oh man, I want that. I want that so bad, I'll, I'll sacrifice things that I think will satisfy me, but they won't. But I, I'm going to let them go. I'm going to let a career go. I'm going to let a, a future spouse, if I'm, that's my worship item, I'm going to let that go. I'm going to let uh, uh, money go and the accumulation of money. Nothing wrong with having money. It's a good thing. But if that's my God, I'm going to let it go. Whatever it is, are you willing to let those things go? Let's pray. God, we're not satisfied with just uh, knowing the simple message of the gospel and just being people who have made a simple commitment to you, although that is very important. And Lord, I pray for people even in this room for today, maybe for the first time in their lives, are, are pondering that decision to be, follower, to be a follower of you. And I pray you'd give them grace. And even right now, God, you give them the courage to say, yes, yes, I want to follow you. Even now as I'm speaking, God, you give them the courage not to leave these doors if, if that be your timing before they settle their account with you and say, Lord, I want to follow you. But Lord, many of us have, have come to that point in our life and yet we hang on to so much stuff that we think is going to satisfy us. Lord, we don't want to be satisfied with that. That is not things that truly satisfy you are and we want to chase hard after you. As we look at the next four weeks, as we look at what happened to that early church of those brand new followers of Christ and how their lives were turned upside down and they started living transformed life in the context of community, God, would that happen here in our own lives? Would we be people who live that way and are not going to satisfy for anything less? God, that's only going to come by your spirit. I'm chief of cowards when it comes to giving up my idols, the things that I hold on to. It's only going to happen by your spirit as you set us free. So come and do that. Pray in Christ's name.